Hello friends, my name is Brenna. And I'm Danny, and, and this, this is Lago Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listeners' discretion is advised. Welcome back, Lagos friends, and today is a very special day, my birthday. Yes! The date of my birth. <laughs> the date of So my- many years ago. Oh my gosh, stop. Yes, we have our spooky queen up in the house today. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling older already. <laughs> oh my goodness. And don't worry, you don't have to say me happy birthday. I hate that, but... <laughs> today, <Happy birthday>. no. <laughs> today's episode is going to cover a lot and i mean a lot this case has mass murder suicide cults vampires incest and child abuse so just wanted to put that out there in case you still decide to listen to this episode i want everyone to be prepared i'm not shocked by this at all with track record of your case i know of course you just had to make this one over the top and i was gonna say i know you've heard of elise the name marcus wesson because you were trying to steal this case from me and i was like no (laughs) do not touch this case this is my case but what all do you know about it really just vampires and weirdness of course but i mean that's all i got into because i was like wait i think brenna was talking about this one let me double check and you're like (laughs) Don't touch it. Do not even look at it. But yeah, so I've had my eyes on this case for a while now, and I knew it'd be a lot to discuss and research, but this is by far the most bizarre case I've ever heard of. And it was also the hardest to look into because there was a lot of inconsistent information based on the timeline before the main crime took place, and also just the sheer amount of delusional behavior this monster committed. I just couldn't fit in everything without this episode being two hours long. I will also say there are a lot of names I will be talking about and a couple of few first names of children that are also the same as their parent. So I'm just going to try and make this as easy as possible to understand. But even with all that, I thought this case not only had to be told as it's not very well known, but that October would be the perfect time to discuss this because after all, we will be talking about vampires. But again, we have a lot to cover. So, Danny, are you ready? Ugh, yes. <laughs> Another forced yes for you. <laughs> I'm just over this. I'll these. take it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Marcus Wesson was born August 22nd in 1946 in Kansas and was the oldest of four children. He was raised as a part of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And if you're unfamiliar with this church, according to Britannica, quote, Seventh-day Adventists share many of the basic beliefs of Protestant Christianity, including acceptance of the authority of the Bible, recognition of the existence of human sin, and the need for salvation, and belief in the atoning work of Christ, end quote. I'm glad you clarified, because I was like... I think you just made that up. I've never heard that really? in my life. Oh, never. I see. I even knew about that before. Really? This. Yeah. Oh, wow. But we did have, at my previous job, we did have a lot of seven-day Adventists come for, like, conventions. There was a convention oh, okay. in San Antonio, so that's probably why. But Wesson said that his father was an alcoholic and abused him and his siblings physically and sexually, but eventually abandoned the family when Marcus was a child to live with another man. 
He said that his mother was a religious fanatic who would provide daily Bible studies and would whip the children with an electrical cord as punishment. As a child, Marcus liked to play preacher, and this was considered his favorite game. Even though his family was clearly dysfunctional and abusive, family members remember Marcus as a kind kid who was a good singer. In the early 1960s, the family had moved from Kansas to California. When Marcus was 17 years old, he dropped out of high school and joined the army. He was stationed in Europe as either a medic or ambulance driver, as the sources vary on this, but was honorably discharged in 1968. As he settled back into the U.S. in San Jose, California, he met an older woman who was 13 years older than him named Rosemary Maturina Solorio. Rosemary had eight children already when she met Wesson and soon broke it off with her husband so that Wesson could move in. It is stated that Marcus believed the family needed him as their shepherd to guide them. In 1971, the two had a child of their own and one of Rosemary's older daughters, who was also named Rosemary, Struggling with a drug addiction left her seven children at the home, bringing the total number of children to care for to 16. Around that same time, Marcus fell for one of Rosemary's younger daughters named Elizabeth, who was just eight years old. Marcus was 27. He told young Elizabeth that God told him that she was already his wife, and the two had an at-home wedding ceremony. By the time Elizabeth was 12, Wesson was sexually abusing her, and when Elizabeth was 15, he legally married her when she became pregnant with his child. He would eventually have 10 more children with Elizabeth, although one died as an infant. Wow, that was a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm. There's several little things that I picked up on. One, I did not know at that time. I don't know if this is still a thing, but you could drop out of high school and join the army. That kind of shook me, especially yeah. when you said something of, like, he was helping people. Like well, an ambulance driver, a medic? Bruh, granted, you didn't even get a high school degree. This was in the 60s. So he was discharged in 1968, so I'm assuming this was end of World War II. So they yeah. were probably needing a bunch of people. I don't think you could do that now, but I don't I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> God be with us. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of kids. A lot, a lot of kids. Yeah. And even more kids. And then he just escalated it to mm-hmm. a whole nother level. So was Elizabeth one of the kids that was just kind of grouped in this? Or this was one of his own children? No. So this was Rosemary's daughter. Okay. So his girlfriend, him and Rosemary never got married. But mm-hmm. because he married her daughter. But like his would-be stepdaughter. Okay. That makes eight sense. eight years old. Just yeah. trying to compile where everybody fits in. Yeah. Despite all of this, Wesson never had a job and lived off of welfare or food stamps and had the older children work jobs in which they would then give him all of their earnings. The family moved around California often, living in various houses, shacks, tents, and even a boat. Marcus separated the girls from the boys in separate living quarters as he feared that they would develop sexual feelings for one another. When money was low, the children were sent out dumpster diving to put food on the table. Marcus homeschooled all of the children, but the boys' education differed drastically from the girls. The boys were provided with Bible study, which was from Marcus's own handwritten Bible that stated Jesus Christ was a vampire and that, quote, drinking blood was the key to immortality, end quote. On top of all of these bizarre sermons he provided to all of the children, the boys were also enrolled into martial arts and were told they needed to get a black belt before they were allowed to leave his watch. The boys told their instructor, Lori and Tan, that, quote, 
they had to go through his program, end quote. The girls' education started young and was centered on, and I'm using air quotes here, loving. Oral sex was taught to the girls starting at eight or nine years old. As they grew older, Wesson taught lessons on sexual techniques. In addition to this, their domestic duties involved washing his dreadlocks and scratching his head and armpits for him. Ooh. I knew you liked that one. I can't. I can't. You know I'm a closeted feminist, so like just the discrepancies in these two things. And they're so lights me up. And they're like that's just disgusting. And they're it's so sad that you're teaching children this. Like they're so they're malleable and like doing Mm -hmm. things like that. It's just like it's so hard to unteach those. As a parent figure, it's not even, you know, like like a random person. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my god. All of the children, despite their gender, would have to address Wesson as either master or lord. Marcus would end up being the father slash grandfather to 18 children as he had incestuous relationships with his daughters, Kiani and Sabrina, and his nieces, Rosa Solorio, Sofina Solorio, and Ruby Ortiz. He also privately married all five girls. All of the children, despite their gender, would have to address Wesson as either master or lord, They would also have to listen to his sermons for hours, which mainly revolved around either vampires or how important it was to stay together as a family because the end was near. Wesson also told the children, quote, prepare for the day when the devil with a badge and a blue uniform would show up at their door, end quote, and that they were devils, so suicide would be an acceptable escape from police. The children were also subject to abuse as punishment. In an interview with ABC, one of Marcus's sons, Serafina Wesson, stated, quote, A 30-day punishment involved, well, 21 hits on your person, and then that's one in the morning, and then one in the afternoon, and one before you went to bed. Now imagine getting that for 30 days straight, end quote. Serafina also remembered when he was beaten with a wire cable for 20 minutes straight for sneaking a spoonful of peanut butter. So he was really monopolizing on every aspect of their lives, whether that be food or who they talk to or really anything, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. One, the fact that he separated his children and stepchildren, the genders apart, Mm -hmm. because he thought that they would have sexual feelings for one another, that said a lot. But yeah, the boys had a very different upbringing than the girls. But also the master lord... Definitely out on that. Yeah. I can't. Yeah. As soon as somebody starts referring to themselves as that, you know it's going downhill very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not like they could tell anybody, yeah, the boys maybe, you know, went to martial arts. But other than that, you know, like they were all homeschooled. They didn't go to the doctor, dentist. It was like <laughs> there was nobody to be like, whoa, I also that's f- a little off. Yeah. I also find it so bizarre that there were so many of them. And how they were moving so often and how he was able to keep... Because he didn't have a job. So it's like you had no money to afford a house or anything. And you're living in California. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I even know how you were able to maintain keeping all 18 people in one place in that yeah. situation. I'll talk about their living situation a little bit later. But there was a lot of different living situations. And most of them were not the best situations to be in. Because the family moved around often, they were encountered by multiple people, whether that be neighbors or just people in the surrounding area. However, even though they thought of the family as odd, they never saw anything to suggest the children were in danger. 
The family would also have hideaway spots along the California coast in order to stay hidden from police or child protective services who would wonder why the children weren't in school. And in 1990, Marcus was convicted of welfare fraud after failing to list his boat as an asset. This just further extended his thinking that authorities were out to break up the family, and I assume escalated his need for more hideaways. So, was this boat his? Yes. It was like an old, run-down, like, sailboat that was How were all these people living in that? Well, so the boys were separated from the girls, remember? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. It was, like, half and half. So, yeah, you know, he would, like, rent a home. I think there was one scenario where the boys lived in a home that was rented a lot of times they would find vacant houses and live Mm. in those and then the girls would be somewhere else or they would be segregated in like different tents if they were living in a tent camping situation Mm -hmm. um but yeah (laughs) definitely not enough space for even all the girls yeah it was cramped at one of the hideaways, the girls were forced to live below deck on an old sailboat in Tomales Bay, unattended for four to five months at a time to avoid detection. Another hideout was two hours south of the bay, where Wesson had the family pitch an army surplus tent, where the family lived in squalor for about 12 years. Now, the family often lived in terrible situations, but Marcus did not. When the family lived in the tent with no running water or electricity, he had the children carpet the floor of his tent. He also pretty much only ate fast food, even when the family was struggling to find food in dumpsters. He ate so well compared to the family that he was nearly 300 pounds. It's said that at one point in time, the children were made to sleep on doors, which were held up by sawhorses, but that's not the oddest place the children slept. Marcus bought a dozen of mahogany antique coffins from a store in Fresno, California. He told the store that he was planning on using the wood to fix an old boat, but he ended up leaving the coffins there for almost a year until they finally asked Wesson to remove them. When he came to collect the hand-carved coffins, the girls carried out the coffins one by one onto the old yellow school bus. The store owner, Lois Dugovich, told CBS News, quote, those girls loaded every one of them in there. It was the weirdest thing, end quote. And yes, they would end up using those coffins as beds to sleep. Wow. Yeah. Just like bizarre and bizarre, bizarre. He was obsessed with death. That's the only thing I can think of. Also, you know, in the folklore of vampires, vampires slept in coffins. So that's the only reason I can think of. But So also, when you say unattended for four to five months, was it they were not attended by him or they just weren't detected by anybody else? So both. Like he wouldn't live with him for those four to five months the girls' ages varied from time to time there were some older girls and even in those times the older girls would try to teach the younger girls like try and school them Mm -hmm. but they really could only teach them how to like color and and things like that yeah wow that's crazy and then when you said over 300 pounds i was like that's horrible that your family is literally diving through dumpsters and you are overweight fast because they're eating fast food like i can't granted he is or was already a big guy so he was over six feet tall you could tell he was just kind of like built a little bit thicker Mm -hmm. but yeah he was definitely overweight gosh this is disgusting yeah
1993, during the Waco standoff with Branch Davidian leader David Koresh, Wesson was glued to the TV. He told the children, quote, This is how the world is attacking God's people. This man is just like me. He is making children for the Lord. That's what we should be doing, making children for the Lord, end quote. The abuse and incestuous relationships continued into the early 2000s when two of his nieces, Ruby Ortiz and Sofina Solorio, wanted out. Wesson finally agreed to let them leave on the grounds that they kept their children, Jonathan and Aviv, behind with them. Desperate to get out, they agreed. As Ruby and Sofina adjusted to the outside world, they realized that what Wesson was doing to the children and what he had done to them was wrong and returned on March 12, 2004 to get their sons out of the home. By now, the family was renting a home in Fresno, California. Ruby and Sofina gathered other family members who were no longer living in the home, and they all knew the family had a suicide pact, so they desperately begged Marcus to let their sons go. When he refused, a commotion ensued, which caught the attention of neighbors. Inside the home, the girls began shouting out, calling them Judas, whores, bitch, and that they should bow down to their master. The neighbors would end up calling police, who would show up and briefly speak to a calm Marcus outside the home. Even though Ruby, Sofina, and others that joined them for support told police that Marcus would hurt the children and that he owned a gun, the police didn't consider this enough evidence to enter the home. By now, Marcus had already locked himself back inside the home and refused to come out to speak to police. Shots began ringing out as neighbors and family would later recall, although police stated that no officer heard gunfire. 30 minutes later, Marcus walked outside covered in blood. He was immediately placed in handcuffs, three pairs to be exact. As police finally entered the home, they found a pile of bodies tangled on top of one another in a back bedroom. Each victim was shot with a single bullet through the eye with a 22 pistol. It would take several days for the medical examiners to identify the bodies, but they would identify all nine victims deceased in the home that day. Officers that recovered the bodies would later seek counseling or had to take administrative leave as the crime scene was so traumatizing. Seven of the nine victims were under the age of 12. As for the other two victims, one was 17 years old and the other just 25. In the order from oldest to youngest, their names are Sabrina Wesson, who is 25 years old, Elizabeth Wesson, who is 17, Illabelle Wesson, who is 8, Aviv Wesson, who was seven, Jonathan Wesson, seven, Ethan Wesson, four, Sedona Wesson, two, Marshy Wesson, two, and Jeeva Wesson was only a year old. Wow. So I'm sure you're going to get to why this all ensued. But I'm curious of how no officers heard the gunfire. Yeah, and that's been debated often because really everyone the family that was there outside the home trying to get the kids back and trying to get everybody out as well as neighbors said they heard gunfire Mm -hmm. and for some reason none of the officers said they heard it that's really interesting and then Mm -hmm. also what was with the three pairs of handcuffs because he was so big so they had to connect them all or Mm -hmm. oh my god yeah He was so wide that, you know, they couldn't just put his hands behind his back and use one pair of handcuffs. That is crazy. Mm -hmm. 
Marcus Wesson was charged with nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of sex crimes, which included the rape and molestation of his underage daughters. The trial began on March 3rd of 2005 after a couple attempts by Wesson to delay the trial. The surviving family members testified, although at this point, most were still in support of Wesson and vowed that he was a good father and that he could do no harm. Wesson's defense was the oldest Sabrina shot all of the children and then herself. Her DNA was the only one found on the 22 pistol. However, there were no fingerprints at all on the gun. There was, however, gunshot residue on her hands. They were also unable to determine whether or not her death was by suicide or by murder, as the wound showed consistent of that as of a self-inflicted one, but a shot at close range with this caliber could not be ruled out either. Sabrina's body was found on top of all of the other bodies with the gun below her. However, it was undetermined whether or not she fell there or was placed there. To this day, we still do not know the exact truth, and I think it would be like him to have the woman do all the hard work while he lay back and do nothing, but I can also see him pulling the trigger too. Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. I mean, he was making them scratch his, scratch armpits. his armpits. Yeah. So I could see how you would make her do that, but it's also unfortunate that you're blaming someone one who was not taught any differently than your disgusting teachings Mm -hmm. and then also was probably feared herself to not do it well that and they were all so brainwashed right like he had already told the children you know like he's the same as david koresh and we Mm, know how that ended also you know the whole thing about the devil with a badge and a blue uniform would come and you would need to commit suicide as an escape. So there was already that brainwashing of suicide is acceptable if they're going to separate the family. Yeah, it's just really sad. Yeah. Either way, after days of deliberation, the jury found it didn't matter who actually pulled the trigger and found Marcus Wesson guilty of all charges. He was sentenced to 102 years on the 14 counts of sex crimes And for the nine counts of murder for his grandchildren slash children, the sentence was death. He was sentenced to the nation's largest population of death row inmates in San Quentin Prison. In 2019, Governor Gavin Newsom signed a moratorium on executions in the state of California, sparing Wesson's life. Luckily, he will never be eligible for parole. So I definitely think he is the type of person that I'm okay that he didn't die of lethal injection because I think it's much better that he has to rot there because yeah. if his teaching, like, suicide's acceptable, it's an out, no. Then not, you're, you're not staying. going, bro. <laughs> We're going to save you. I will make that happen. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make you live as long as possible. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry. If you try, we'll bring you back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it said that he did slim down in prison Um, And I don't know if that's kind of like a punishment in and of itself that he can't have like his fast food. So, well, and he's stuck. He can't do anything like he's he's in there now. He has tried to write several books to get them published. Like he reached out to several people saying like, oh, I wrote this book. I wrote this book, his handwritten Bible. He wanted that published um, oh god I forgot that made my skin fall. handwritten bible yeah. get out and I can't it's interesting because 
every single person that like would try to read the book of like, okay, like this was sent to me. Let me see if like I can publish it. It's all ramblings. Like it makes no, no sense. sense yeah yeah so, and I've, literally everybody said that like i don't understand it it literally doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> i can't i feel like i've been saying that the whole episode but i literally cannot <laughs> marcus wesson like stop <laughs> it you're terrible with your handwritten bible go home yes Now, I did mention that the surviving members were mostly in support of Wesson at the trial, especially his male children. However, they all learned over time that the man they thought of as God was actually just a manipulative, delusional, and narcissistic man. A local... Yeah. I'm glad that they came to that realization. Yeah. It would be really, really heartbreaking if Mm -hmm. a couple didn't. A local Fresno reporter named Alyssa Sofios was devastated for the surviving members shortly after the mass murders while they were still blindly defending their father. Before the trial began, Alyssa ended up taking in Elizabeth, Gypsy, and Keani Wesson after Elizabeth called her in tears. Elizabeth and her daughters were having an incredibly difficult time reassimilating into society and couldn't find work. After all other options of an alternative living situation were exhausted, she went with her gut and chose to help the women even though she knew it could cost her her career. For an interview with ABC News, Alyssa stated, quote, I became part of the story. I'm not supposed to do that. I even knew I wasn't supposed to do it. I was even telling myself I wasn't supposed to do it. The minute I hung up the phone, I kind of sat on my bed and mourned the loss of my reporting career. Luckily, this kind act of hers paid off as she was able to keep the same job with a TV station, and as of 2010, she was still roommates with Gypsy. Alyssa also wrote a book in 2009 named Where Hope Begins about their incredible story surviving Marcus Wesson. Both Gypsy and Keani now have daughters, and Gypsy named her baby girl Alyssa in honor of the local reporter that took her in. As of 2010, one of Marcus's surviving sons, Serafino, got married and had three children. As a way to honor his sibling's death, his goal was to become a police officer. And as far as I can tell, Marcus Wesson is still alive in prison today. He is 75 years old. It's really sad to see that Alyssa had to kind of decide to do what's right or what was right for her career. career. Mm -hmm. I like that's really upsetting and kind of really makes you put in perspective like is the status quo the right thing or not yeah it's it just hard because like i don't know how they got to the situation of where she felt comfortable enough to call her and that was that but she did and like they've already been through so much yeah like and that's well horrifying. the fact that because elizabeth this is this elizabeth that obviously didn't die that day she had 10 children, right? Mm-hmm. Marcus pulled her out of school when he first met her at eight years old. So she has no formal education, no life skills because she was just brainwashed for yeah. her entire life. And it was even said she told somebody, I think it was a neighbor, that she wanted to stop having children, but that Marcus, her husband, wouldn't ever allow it. Oh, my God. Yeah, so she was already to that point where it was like, I don't want to have any more kids, you know. Plus, 
I have these kids and as soon as they get old enough, you're molesting them and raping them and having kids with my kids. Yeah. You know? I couldn't, I could not imagine. And so I'm glad that she did take that step and that quote unquote risk and help them out. I, I don't know how they did it and how they managed to kind of go to a new normal and that's amazing on their part and it just shows their resilience and Mm -hmm. everything but that I mean I'm happy to see that there was some sort of happy ending and when you said the one guy became a police officer I got goosebumps I thought that was so sweet and I mean it's just it's so scary again I will repeat this until the day I die that somebody's words and motivations can turn something that's supposed to be happy or sacred or coming together and turn it so horrible and evil Mm -hmm. and it's really like it's scary words are are terrifying yeah absolutely when I think it's so tragic too and not to give him any excuse but he was abused as a child and we do see it sometimes where the abused becomes an abuser and of course he took it to even different level with the incestuous relationships but I think that was his controlling like that narcissistic and controlling portion of him but I think it's just so tragic that maybe if I don't know I don't know if he could have gotten helped and this could have gotten prevented but no one deserves to be abused and I think it's so tragic that in those cases where the abused become abuser it's like no you know it's like where does the cycle end and Mm -hmm. it's easy to sit here and when nothing's happened to you and say you could have just chose differently but it's like the set it's a learned behavior and I mean like you said especially when you're that young and you're you know you're being told oh well this is what love is this is and you don't know any different you don't have anybody else to say no that's not right yeah and I think it even goes to the point of an extreme of anything like his family was religious Mm -hmm. but they took it to such an extreme that it became dangerous Mm -hmm. so I think extremes of anything is a red flag that kind of needs to be brought to light in any type of situation. Everything in moderation. Exactly. Like, there I, there are good Especially things. Especially cookies. <laughs> yes, girl. <laughs> but then you become 300 pounds and have three handcuffs, yeah. not one. I, I just think the cycle of that needs to be put in consideration. I mean, it's amazing. These kids were in that same cycle and chose differently mm-hmm. and recovered. Well, and they and received the help that exactly. they so desperately needed, you know? And that's what will ultimately be the factor of ending that cycle or not. Exactly. If they receive the help that they need. Because you you can't overcome that yourself. Like, you do need no. help. Especially no. if that was, you were born into that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And I mean, I, I just find it amazing that they were able to trust anything anyone else said because if something you were taught was that disturbing and perverted and just he took anything and everything and twisted it and crumpled it up and distorted its image Mm -hmm. I don't know how you come back to take your rose-colored glasses off and kind of see things how it is yeah I think it also kind of made it easier that they were so isolated though because once they did come out into the real world they were like wait, literally no one else on the planet believes this. It's not like they're living out in public and like, this is what I believe. And it's like a 
a debate of some sort. Yeah, and I I think it would also be easier to debunk a lot of the things. Mm -hmm. Because it would be like, yeah, that's, no, that's wrong, dude. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Especially the vampire stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, with that, that will conclude today's episode. Let us know your thoughts on Instagram and Facebook at Lago Stories. And while you're there, don't forget to follow us if you haven't already. If you have a case suggestion, please reach out through our website at lawghoststories.net. All of today's source material will be linked in the description box below. We'll be back with a new episode next week, but until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound, Nightmare, for our theme music.